Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us again will be pediatrician Michelle Stanford from Aurora, Colorado, a friend of ours, someone I work closely with on the National Board of the Catholic Medical Association and an all-around delightful woman. She's going to talk to us about common questions you might have or parents have about acute illnesses and injuries that present at home and trying to figure out what the heck should we do. Do we call the doctor? Do we go to an urgent care, an emergency room, or do we sit on it? Andrew, why do you think this important? This topic is so important? Yeah, you know, we uh, in family medicine, I get to see a lot of pediatric patients. So I, I field some of these phone calls. And I think it's important because part of the reason we even started this show was we got the feedback that I wish we could just understand how doctors think, what they think about. I wish I could ask a few more questions, that type of thing. So we wanted to pull back the curtain and let y'all into the mind of a pediatrician. When you get these phone calls at 2 a.m., how in the world do you decide what needs to go to the ER? What can wait till tomorrow? What's actually safe to say? So how many kids are there in the United States here that we're talking about, Andrew, let alone the rest of the world? Yeah. So this is these are U.S. numbers, but as of 2019, there's 73 million kids under 18 in America, about 24 million kids in the young pediatric group below five, 24 million in kind of the six to 12 range, and then 12 to 17 is another 25 million. So about evenly split in those groups. Uh, great. So that's just over one fifth or you know, two out of every nine people in the US is under the age of 18. That's a, that's a big population. It is. The, the percentage is higher in my house. We actually have 78% of our household is pediatric. Oh, oh yeah? Well, so, you're right. 77.7. And it used to be mine until they move away or grow up and go to college. <laughs> and now we're only half of my household down from 78%. Yeah, it's pretty, it's crazy, but it's a part of my daily life trying to figure out what needs, what needs duct tape and what needs medicine and what needs tender love and care. But, uh, you know, in 2019, 95, greater than 95% of children saw a physician. So thank goodness most kids can see a doctor in America when they need to. 171 million pediatric doctor visits at least every year. And Does that include the family physicians? So this is pediatric patients, not pediatric doctors? That's correct. Pediatric patients. And, and actually over a quarter of kids beyond their regular doctor visited an urgent care at least once. Even 4% of them visited multiple, three or more times annually. <laughs> so, Not surprising <laughs> following kids around. Uh, you know, but I wonder if it was higher before the age of all the electronic devices when they were playing outside even more. You know, that's a good question because there's, there's several factors. I mean, kids were outside more in the past, but now I think maybe parents have more access to the internet to, to wonder if if this is actually just a bruise or if it could be a sign of cancer, which I get that a lot, um, you know, with the access to more information, the only problem when you're a patient reading the internet is you have a sample size of one patient and it's hard to figure yes. out, is this cancer or just a bruise? The doctor's got a huge advantage because they've got a sample size of tens of thousands of patients. And then at that point they can say, no, 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 you're safe. It's definitely not cancer. And I suppose you found that uh, first-time parents are much more concerned than, um, you know, experienced parents. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's it's so funny. And I was there too. I mean, the first the first time you have a baby, yes. they're so fragile and you just don't want to break them. And uh, I'm, I always tell folks that kids are designed, they're designed to basically survive in spite of us. And uh, <laughs> like every <laughs> every little bit of the way, we learn more and more. And on, on people who are fortunate to have subsequent kids, man, the stress level just plummets. And you get to be a, a pediatrician in your own right just from seeing all the diseases. Your kids are like my kids. They, they try every different little way to give you a new experience with parenting. <laughs> <laughs> They're but. always thinking. That's right. I, I remember, you know, yeah, even as a doctor, I didn't have a clue about some things. We had particularly challenging uh, first child who cried a lot. And when the second child came home from the hospital after two days, my wife said, we've got to call the hospital. So she called and said, I'm really worried about this baby. All she does is sleep pee and poop and eat. It doesn't do anything else. 
And the nurse just said, <laughs> ma'am, that's what babies are supposed to do. But my first one never did it this way. <laughs> Isn't it? It is something that I mean, I think uh, God's, God's designed it, I think, as a growth opportunity for those of us with kids and, and experience helps a lot. And so that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about Dr. Stanford, because she's got a lot of experience dealing with kids. And so our goal with this episode, and and we might revisit this topic in the future, oh, certainly, is to kind of address the most common things that you've probably gone through. Or if you've got kids, it's probably coming up in the next month or two. One of these questions, you're going to think, should I call the doctor? We're going to see what Dr. Stanford says about all these different things. But before we get to the trivia question. Yes, before we do, we want to talk to everybody about the 2021 Annual Education Conference through the CMA. And we actually want to invite you to attend. Because we think that many of our colleagues and students and health professions are aching to reconnect in person after way too many online and virtual meetings the last year and a half. Yeah, if I never Zoomed again, it would be okay. But I love going to this meeting every single year. And this year's topic is the joy of medicine. Yes, the joy. At the conference, it will be held in Florida, Orlando, sunny Orlando, at the Carib Royale, October 7th through 9th. All the rooms at this hotel are suites, and there are plenty of activities for everyone in the family. Our keynote speaker will be the dynamic former Swiss guard, now dean of the business school at St. Thomas University in Houston, Mario Ensler. He'll use his incredible humor, wit, and deep insights to share stories about the joy of his former boss, St. John Paul II. Yeah, how many people get to say that? I know when I've heard Professor Ensler speak in the past, I was really moved with the stories, kind of the behind the scenes of St. John Paul II that I had no idea. This, this conference is especially geared for people in healthcare, physicians, nurses, students, and other professionals who sense a loss of joy in their professional lives and are looking for ways to rekindle that joy. And you know what? Even if you're not experiencing a joy deficit, just getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country is incredibly energizing. And we believe so strongly that medical professionals will enjoy the growth in faith, fellowship, and formation of the conference that, for first time, the CMA is offering a money-back guarantee. That's right, Andrew. For anyone attending this 90th annual CMA conference for the first time, First time going to any CMA conference, the CMA is offering a 90% refund of the registration fee if the attendee does not think or feel that they grew in either faith or fellowship or formation after attending. It's that simple. And you know, I am one of many people who have gotten hooked on the CMA after attending just one annual conference. After we went to our first one, my wife came with me and we said, gee whiz, this is going to be our thing every year. We're going to use this Mom and dad, if you can watch the kids one weekend, this is it. In fact, actually going to the conference is one of the number one reasons that people give for joining the CMA. It's a great experience at the annual conference. And if you're thinking about attending, please go to the CMA website at cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D at O-R-G. And before going to the break, I will pose the medical trivia question of the day category, why parents take kids to the doctor. So, according to a 2013 pediatric coding newsletter from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the most common reason for children visiting a pediatrician is not surprisingly for a well-child visit. But, in any order, what do you think make up the next three most common reasons parents bring children to a pediatrician? As a hint, think of a medical specialty that's designated by three letters, a three-letter abbreviation for one of the surgical subspecialties. This might help you figure it out. We'll have the answer with these this triple answer after the break from the interview near the end of the show. But after this break on Dr. Doctor, we will have with us Dr. Michelle Stanford on urgent pediatric problems. Welcome back to our show when we are now going to interview Dr. Michelle Stanford on urgent pediatric problems. What's a mom or dad to do when faced with a child with problem A, B, or C, and we hope to get even further along in the alphabet. Michelle Stanford is a board-certified pediatrician who has a private practice in Denver, Colorado. Her most important accomplishments are her family, where she says she's really learned how to be a pediatrician. She's got two children who have survived childhood and are now in college, and one teenager who has almost survived childhood 
and she has been married 25 years, and she thoroughly enjoys also her intense work with the Catholic Medical Association. Michelle, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks, Tom and Andrew. Good to be back. So, Michelle, I've got a baby. It's screaming. She won't stop. Diaper change recently fed, and I and mom didn't drop her. What do I do next? Certainly, children can be fussy or irritable. I would say the first first question we always ask when a baby is fussy is, can you know, can you calm them down? Are they crying from an injury? Are they crying because they're hungry, um, or they just want to be held, or are they tired? So, kind of going down the list of things that can cause babies to be fussy. The age is also going to be really important for a fussy a baby that's fussy. So uh, a newborn a baby has times of the day that they're very fussy. So when I get a baby who's fussy, I'm going to go down the list of things that make babies fussy, but then I'm going to determine the age and decide what to do next. A lot of times for a parent, I think the biggest concern for me is a baby that can't be consoled, I would say after five to 10 minutes of trying, I think that would probably warrant a call at least to the doctor. It may not need a visit, but a lot of times when you get a baby who cannot be consoled and there isn't an injury, you need to talk to a doctor. And, you know, Michelle, one of the things that we kind of hope to accomplish with this, I think a lot of listeners wonder, is this serious or not? Is this something that um, it's 2 a.m. I should call in the morning? Should I call a doctor at home at 2 a.m.? Do I need to go immediately to the emergency room? How do you figure that out as a patient? Um, you know, as a, as a patient and as a doctor, I tell all my patients actually that they they should call me before they go in. And, you know, even if it is 2 a.m., I would say probably eight out of 10 times I can prevent them from going in. And that's sort of part of what a, your, you do as a physician. I actually also have um, two resources for my patients. One is a, an app that the Children's Hospital here has developed, which is a call your doctor app. And so they can go on that and review some symptoms and go through that step first. So I think that there are some other online versions of that. I don't like people to just Google it, but many doctors will have a similar software on their website. So talking to your doctor, I think, at your first visit and asking them what their um, things they have to assist with those things. Because 2 a.m. is different than 2 in the afternoon, of course. So you know, it's easier. You can think through things a little bit, I think, easier in the daytime yeah. versus the nighttime. So I'll call your doctor app. So is your particular one through Denver Children's Hospital? It is. It is. It's, I mean, I, it's free and downloadable on the Children's Hospital website. So That's you recommend that? Resource. I do. Excellent. So in, in Tom's example there, the baby screaming, how long should you let them scream and you don't understand why it's happening before you call your doctor? Um, that's probably going to depend on the age. One of the first things I would probably ask them to is to take their temperature too. So if a baby's fussy and has a fever, that's different to me than a baby that's just fussy. Um, time limit. Um, goodness. <laughs> you mentioned five to 10 minutes earlier, but I can remember times where we tried for 30 to 60 minutes before we even thought about calling. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the age. So, you know, so for what ages, like for six months, three months, a year, what would you do? So if the baby's not tired, I mean, that's the biggest reason a baby's going to be fussy, even a, you know, 12 month old. So if it's not nap time, if it, you know, it's just really out of the blue, I would say, more than 30 minutes of unconsolable. Now, if you can console them and they stop, it's kind of intermittent, it's different. But if, so, if a baby cries nonstop with no breaks, more than 30 minutes, that should be a call to the doctor, really at any age. F fatigue is the number one reason I get fussy also. <laughs> so I, I always think sometimes little kids, they just, they tell you exactly what's going on. There's no filter. I'm like, oh, I, I feel like fussing like that sometimes, but <laughs> from fatigue. Absolutely agree. <laughs> Now, you, you had mentioned taking the temperature. I, I see a lot of confusion in regards to how do you take the temperature? What's the best thermometer? There's a million different types. And when should I be worried? Is there a number? So we'll, we'll tackle first how to take a temperature. So you're right. There are lots of different methods. Um, so it, this is also age-based. So an infant, a newborn, I would probably say under eight weeks of age needs actually a rectal temperature to know if they have a fever. I mean, you can always screen with other methods, but you have to, if a baby's 
warm, feels warm and fussy. I have to know what the real fever temperature is. And so, you know, a reptile temperature under eight weeks, but you can certainly, if you don't know how to take that, there's ways to, to figure that out. After that, um, after probably two months, maybe even as old as four months, I'm going to do really whatever kind of thermometer they use. I can interpret the results, but you're right there, Vary. For example, a temporal thermometer, the kind of that kind of became kind of more popular during COVID because it's touchless, is going to uh, read temperatures a little higher. Um, axillary temperatures, we always talk about adding a to degree. From my perspective, I just like to know where it was taken, how it was taken, and then I can interpret uh, how, if it's high or not. Your second question on what is too high is a great question. So one of the things people will often say is low grade fever and it's 99 to 100. From a medical perspective, it's not truly a fever until it's over 100.3. So really anything under that, I don't call a fever. There's normal variations of, of body temperature. But then what, how high is too high? That fever myths, fever myths are a big thing that I cancel patients about. From my perspective, Again, age, so an, a baby under eight weeks of age, a temperature over 100.3, it doesn't really matter how it's taken, that baby needs to at least talk, the parents need to talk to the doctor because it, you handle a fever differently in that age group of any degree. Older children, it's really more how the baby looks and the child looks. It's not the height of the fever. There's a myth that brain damage can happen from fevers, and that really does not happen till over 106 or seven, which I've never seen. Oh. So it's really the, the, how the baby looks. I always tell parents, I'm more worried about 101 in a baby who's not smiling or really not even interacting at all than 104 in a baby that's interacting with me. Michelle, when should we think about doing over-the-counter treatments? Like, and when do we call? I mean, if the fever, I just noticed it, it's been there for eight minutes. Do, do I need to call you, um, especially overnight? Or should I try something over-the-counter? Should I give it a longer period of time? How, what's some guidance on that? I would still use how the baby is acting. So again, go back to the 101 in a baby who's not fussy, who baby's taking their bottle, the baby's not acting uncomfortable. I probably wouldn't treat that. A lot of times in babies, we treat the fever because then babies don't eat, they don't get stay hydrated, and they kind of feel uncomfortable. So even at 101, if they are uncomfortable, I would treat it. But if they're not uncomfortable, I wouldn't treat it. Now, Michelle, when I was in training, I remember somebody saying that, well, the fever is actually doing something to help the person get better. So are there times when you should let a fever go? Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of gets back to how they're acting again. And, and, okay. and any kid, if they're because if they're acting fine, we can let it go. And you're right, Tom, it, it fevers the response to the virus or the, the infection that's going on. So you've got the interleukin response. So you want right. to let that go. The problem in kids, I mean, the vast majority of the time, it does affect their intake. And so they tend to get dehydrated really easily. And so if they're not taking their bottle or drinking their liquids, I will often have to medicate them just because that's the only way that they'll take their fluids. And do you ever stack anti-fever medicines like, you know, acetaminophen on top of ibuprofen or vice versa? And Some, when would you do that? Yes, yeah, sometimes uh, kind of getting back to how the kid's acting. Um, so if, if because fever, again, that they'll, that's another myth that the fever doesn't come down, that it's more serious, or if um, you can't get it to come back to normal. But it, if, the kid, if the kid is acting uncomfortable and it's three hours in, can't have Tylenol, that's typically going to happen something with something more like influenza where I do get higher fevers and more discomfort. But if they don't have that discomfort, yes, you can leave the fever. The other scenario where you might stack medications is some babies will have febrile seizures. So if a baby uh, has a genetic predisposition, they may get seizures that ca are caused from high fevers. So it's certainly not very common, but those babies will need to medicate their fever more aggressively because it's the spike in the fever and the height of the fever that can cause them to have seizures. So fevers are a common thing I know that many kids will experience. The other thing I feel like is a, there's a lot of confusion around is breathing, you know, at different age, mostly I'm going to say under two years old, 
you know, my kid sounds like Darth Vader when they breathe. This does not <laughs> seem right. I think they are sick. What do I do? It's a good question. You, you, you get these calls, Andrew. <laughs> well, see, I told Tom, I was so excited about this episode because I, I feel the calls sometimes. And I said, gee whiz, I would love to see what Dr. Stanford has to say about all this. <laughs> yeah. After we came up with the idea for the show, he rifled off within minutes, 20 different topics, <laughs> which is going to take a number of shows because there's just so much. Good, it's true. Um, so first, we can kind of continue about breathing and fevers. So that's often kind of something people don't understand. Well, they really had heavy breathing last night when that fever was 102. So children at baselines, respiratory rate is higher than adults. And so that can make when they have a fever and they make it up to 40 times a minute, which for an adult would be quite fast. But it's just their response to the fever. They're trying to bring that body's temperature down. So that can be a reason that babies will have increased work of breathing. Um, but they'll also have increased work of breathing with certain respiratory illnesses. But the noisy breathing you're describing um, is definitely more common in babies. And the way I describe it to parents is a baby's muscle tone is not as strong as older people's and the airway is muscle. Part of the airway is muscle. And so their airway is sort of floppy. And so they can have noisy breathing more commonly when they're sleeping and relaxed. Um, and so often you'll just have to kind of sort out is that when it's getting from the history, is it when it's there, when they're awake or just when they're sleeping? Um, Children also, probably a different age category, will have um, a tendency to have bigger adenoids, which can cause noisy breathing, but that's going to be in a different category. So how do parents know when a noise is a normal noise and a breathing noise is not normal? Um, I think that would be something they should review with their pediatrician, not an urgent issue unless they're in distress. I often will have pa parents take uh, video of what they're describing to me so that I can decide if it's normal or abnormal. But there are some noisy breathing sounds that potentially need some evaluation. So again, is it taking a video and bring it in and at a well visit would be something that someone could do. Okay. You know, an, another one kind of thinking of this, this young pediatric group in particular is vomiting. You know, and the difference, what's what's the difference between vomiting versus, you know, spitting up when they're real young? And uh, I've I've got seven kids, and so this has happened to me, I don't know how many times, <laughs> but you hear a, a scream, it awakens you in the middle of the night, you go into the bedroom, and the bed is full of vomit, and there's a screaming baby in it, um, younger than five years old, what do I do? You know, kids vomit with anything. That's what I sort of joke about because they, they really, they have more sensitivity to their stomach. And so they do vomit with anything. So I think the few things that you want to want to assess acutely. So one episode of vomiting is really not going to cause them to be dehydrated. So you can kind of check their temperature, go over their, their breathing, kind of all the things that we've already talked about. And so if they vomited once, it's the middle of the night, you calm them down and get them back to sleep. Um, but kids also have an increased risk of dehydration. And so if they do have an acute illness where they're vomiting, 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 and vomiting, there might be other uh, things you can do at home, but ways to help them with to stop vomiting. The other thing the children will often do when they get sick, they may vomit today, but then they're fine all day and they vomit once tomorrow. And so intermittent vomiting in children, again, not an urgent thing, but something that you could discuss with your, your pediatrician if it continues. Um, so that, I think that, does that answer your question, Andrew? Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I see a lot of parents struggle with, especially, you know, at the beginning, it's hard being a first time parent is trying to figure out when should I actually seek out medical care mm -hmm. as opposed to I'm playing it cool. I can do this. I can do this. Um, how do I know when it's a big deal? And is it, I, I feel like a lot of times doctors say it's hard to know how the lungs sound or the ears look. Um, do you really have to evaluate the kids every time to know what's going on? You know, I certainly this comes with experience, but I really feel strong. I mean, this is my job as a pediatrician. I tell parents if they're at home worried about something, they should call. And you know, they're going to get my nurse first often, but they can 
um, go through things and know what to worry for. The parents don't necessarily always have to know that, um, especially first-time parents. You know, you know this, Andrew, as you have more kids, you sort of know what to be worried about and what not to be worried about. And I just think it's better if they're not, if they're worried, they should call. Um, using some of the online tools we talked about are always, you know, helpful as well. But I think you're right. I think as a first-time parent, you really just don't know what to, those first couple weeks is. Actually, I don't know. I'd have to grab the statistic. But when we study um, in quality care, they talk about decreasing ER visits. The highest rate of ER visits are first-time parents in the first year of life. Wow. And so that's just often their concern. And if I can prevent them from going to the ER by talking to them, I absolutely will. A little bit of a different topic, but since COVID, certainly telemedicine has become more common. And so if I'm not sure, I can certainly do a televisit as well, which still much cheaper than going to the ER. An excellent point. And so Michelle, we've been talking about vomiting, but there's a separate entity called regurgitation, which looks like vomiting, but it's different, isn't it? That's correct. We would call that spit up. the medical term is probably regurgitation but so spitting up is definitely something normal for babies to do after feedings just because of their muscle tone and their the way they when they lay flat there are some uh times where there's an abnormal amount of spit up but for the most part babies spitting up after feeds when they're not fussy is very normal so uh, we're sticking with uh, young children here. So say I've got a four-year-old who is climbing on something, some furniture or some tree with a low-hanging limb, and they fall and they hit their head. And oh my gosh, first word through parents' mind is concussion and brain damage. How do you even begin as a parent to evaluate this when a child is crying and they just hit their head? Another very common uh, injury, you're correct. So first you do have to get the, the, ch- the child to calm down. If they have a loss of consciousness, that's usually uh, a little bit more serious uh, injury. But if they're immediately crying, that's actually one question we ask whenever a child hits their head. Did they hit their head and immediately cry, which is a good sign, actually. And then you do have to get the child to calm down to determine you know, the extent of their injuries, which usually even for a four-year-old, once they're not scared and they calm down after a few minutes, you can assess you know, first, how high did they fall from? What did they hit? And then looking for signs of injury, external injury, seeing if they still move all their limbs and legs and arms. Um, if it's an actual hit to the head, um, you know, feeling for bumps and, and seeing how they, they act. Um, asking them just some normal questions to see what their sort of consciousness state is. And then watching for vomiting, you're going to watch them initially, unless it's a, a high fall from a, a tree. I would probably say more than like two or three feet to a really hard surface. You know, that might necessitate a immediate visit to the doctor if it was a high, high place. When, when would someone need a CAT scan of their head after a fall? Um, it would depend on their neurological exam by the, the physician. It would depend on vomiting. If so, if they, I think we use three, if there's more than three episodes of vomiting after an injury, um, not that that immediately gets a, a scan, but it certainly raises our concern for an intracranial injury. And it'll also really depend on the external exam. So kids really do get skull fractures quite frequently, probably less for in a four-year-old. But if I gave you maybe 18 months and younger, they, they actually have a high incidence of skull fractures. We don't always do anything about that, but we want to know if it's present. So there's a, uh, for the physician's exam, I wouldn't expect a parent to do this, but there's a, 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 a physical exam findings that's suggestive of a skull fracture. And is there a time when you're supposed to keep the child awake for a certain period of time after hitting their head? What's that all about? That's a great question. We, I mean, I think we've kind of transitioned away from that. Um, I will usually tell parents if it's bedtime, because kids are naturally going to be sleepy because they sleep a lot. If it's sleeping, you know, bedtime, I'll ask them to wake them up at night and ask them to go to the bathroom. I mean, when you wake a kid up at night, they usually are kind of out of it. So depending on the significance of the injury, but if I am concerned, that's how I usually will do it, but I won't ask them to keep them. Those are practical answers. We're going to add to more of them after the break here on Dr. Doctor.
And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking about common pediatric problems. And we're pulling the curtain behind the mind of our very own pediatrician, Dr. <laughs> Michelle Stanford. Um, Michelle, I don't know about you, but my kids are totally healthy until about 7.30 p.m. until about 6.30 a.m. And all the medical problems happen overnight. And so a common thing I'll hear from one of my kids is that their ear hurts. And it's always right before bedtime. And do they really have an ear problem or not? What what should I do? Yeah. Well, you and I are lucky, Andrew, because when our kids say that, we can look in their ears. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, I mean, I use the the kind of window or bar if they are, aren't consolable. I mean, and it really also depends on the parent because an ear infection, if it is a present at nine o'clock, is really not truly a medical emergency. It can always wait till the morning. But a lot of times a parent's level of concern, they'll want to take them in. But you can always start with antipyretics or anti-pain, so Tylenol or Motrin, just to see if that will calm them down, get them back to sleep so that you can you know, get, make it to the doctors in the, in the morning. Um, if, if you can use some warm or some sort of um, water bottle that you warm up, sometimes just some topical heat on the ear will help. We used to have a Ralgan, which was a numbing medication that we could uh, use. Sometimes I would use that to get patients to my office, but you can actually use olive oil. So sometimes one or two drops of oil in their ear will calm the um, pain because it is pretty uncomfortable. It's truly an ear infection. So I'll try all of those tidbits to get patients. If it's if it's a Saturday morning and I'm trying to get them to Monday morning, that's probably a little harder. But if it's the night before and I can see them first thing in the morning, I often will just try to get them into the office because like I said, it's not an emergency. How does the olive oil work, Michelle? I think it's just a um, topically, it soothes the, the surface. I, I can't quite tell you from a pathophysiological standpoint, but it helps. Good deal. And it's good for you even when you ingest it. That's right. As long you know, as you don't. <laughs> Michelle, I'm just thinking, You've we've mentioned a couple of times uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen and ibuprofen, or another name would be like Motrin. Um, what are safe over-the-counter treatments and what are the age ranges that it's safe? So if we start with Tylenol and Motrin, there are actually age limits. So under six months, if we're using um, either pain or fever meds, it's only Tylenol. So ibuprofen, you can start to use at six months. Um, always knowing those are things you do want to have like a dosing chart or something like that to know based on the child's weight, because there are different formulations for um, the, the milligrams per ml for both ibuprofen and Tylenol. But those are good ones to always have on hand at home so that at 2 a.m. you don't have to run out and get them. Under four years of age, probably besides those two medications, the only other medication that I think you need to have at home, I, I guess I'll give a qualification, but liquid medications would be Benadryl. So Benadryl, in case you have an allergic reaction, Benadryl will sometimes, under the advice of a physician, be used for a cold just to kind of dry up mucus or maybe even as a cough suppressant. But really, over-the-counter medications for colds outside of those three medications under the age of four should not be used. I guess I should qualify. One other one that you could use is honey, and that's actually often in the aisle, and they sell it, I think it's Zarbies, but they, they put a lot of high price on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michelle, some of these other medications that we see over the counter that are not prescription, uh, there's a lot of different brands for teething, for cold, or, and for gas, for little babies. Are those safe? Do they work well? Should I try them? There are a few that are fine to use, but most of the herbal medications that are, are natural, um, you know, herbs are designed from medications and they often have a lot of side effects associated with them. But you're right, Andrew, there are a few. So gas drops, which is going to be myocon, those are safe, may or may not help. Um, I think in general for some of those medications, you know, you certainly can ask. Each individual physician might have recommendations, but for the most part, most of those medications are not going to be very helpful. 
Let's move on to what little kids do with their hands. They find things to bring to their mouths and swallow. So sometimes <laughs> they might get into things that are not food substances. And sometimes we're sure what they are. You know, maybe some of our own vitamins or supplements or pills. And sometimes we're not sure what they got into. Or maybe they got into something under the kitchen sink. Uh, how do we evaluate when, you know, kids under five put things into their mouth that don't belong there? Yes, so that's a, another common after-hours problem. So the, the, you can always call your physician, but I'll tell you the first thing that I advise people to do when they ingested something is to call poison control. So poison control has a universal number of 1-800-222-1222. And that number, like I said, use I even direct patients because there can be, like you said, Tom, something under the sink and I have no idea how to handle an ingestion of each individual subject. As well as ibuprofen, there are certain amounts per weight, and those are all very um, designed protocols that the poison control follows. So if your child has ingested something, that would be the first thing I would do actually before I would call the doctor, as long as the child is coherent and there's not something obviously distressful that needs more acute attention. Um, there are also other things that children's do and they, they put things in their mouth like batteries and toys and things like that. Yes. And those will all have specific urgency. For example, you guys probably know this, but button batteries, button yes. batteries when ingested by kids are actually, it's an absolute emergency that they get seen. And those are individual things you may not know if it was a button battery or not. So any type of ingestion, I would say you either call your physician, but often they're going to direct you to poison control first. Why is it an emergency, Michelle, for a button battery? Well, so for a button battery, they can. There's the substance within the button battery actually can eat through your esophagus, eat through your stomach, oh. and so they remove those many foreign bodies. For example, like a, a, a penny or some certain certain. Uh, coins, we actually just let them pass a Lego or something like that. And we wouldn't really do anything, but a button battery immediately gets taken out by uh, a surgeon. I, I'm just thinking as we're talking too. you know, one of the, the common things, this is the time of COVID, you know, uh, how often is it normal for kids to be sick? Uh, is this acute mm. illness COVID? Do I have to make sure it's not COVID every time, you know? Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, especially um, now the kids are kind of back in daycare and getting sick more frequently. First, I'll talk about sort of frequency of illness in like daycare, and then we'll talk about the COVID question, Andrew. So typically when a child is in a daycare setting, in a group setting, I expect them to get sick every two weeks. So you, you think about a child's immune system is... is immature and they haven't seen all the viruses that you and I have. And so they really, in the winter months, they tend to get a viral illness about every 10 to 14 days. And so, um, you know, that that's pretty frequent. So during COVID times that all changed because most kids were not in daycare centers, they are back now. And so whether that child needs to be COVID tested every time, um, I would say no. So we do have kind of some guidelines of things that we look for to make us more suspicious, um, whether that child needs tested. That would definitely be a, a conversation to have with your doctor. And you had mentioned daycare. If a kid is sick with what sounds like a common cold in the minds of the parents, or maybe I saw the doctor and they said, this is a common cold. How long should that kid stay home from school or daycare? Pre-COVID, we, <laughs> we would say as soon as they are without a fever for 24 hours, they can return to daycare. Um, it probably hasn't changed terribly post-COVID. It depends. Some of the daycares that I, I mean, this is lightened up as the cases are less, but some daycares were requiring every illness to be tested for COVID before they could return. And so some of those guidelines have changed. So people under five are short. So oftentimes they might be walking around the kitchen and they might reach up and touch something. And once in a while they might touch something really hot and then the delayed scream. What next? Burns. Yes. So an acute burn for any child, you know, you want to run under cold water, but burns in kids and hands are actually um, generally, I mean, if it's a mild burn and it doesn't blister, 
you could probably handage at home. But what happens with kids and burns on their hands, they can actually get strictures and it can affect the growth of the skin. So any really significant burn for a child on their hands, particularly, really is a medical emergency. So what do they do for that? So they're going to sometimes do skin grafting, but they're going to usually put the kid in a splint so that the hand, so that the skin doesn't make like a contracture doesn't happen and the, the skin grows at a sort of a crooked way. So a contracture is like a scar that, you, you know, makes you curl your finger maybe. Yep. So that would be hand burns. So if it's not on a hand, you probably, it doesn't have to be an immediate emergency. If it's on a, a arm or a leg and there's no blister, you can, you know, wash the burn and then put apply an ointment like a topical antibi um, antibiotic ointment, and you call the physician. I think most burns, especially if they blister, should at least have a discussion with the doctor. But if it's on the hands, it's just ha handled differently. So, how long should they put their hand in water, and should it be room temperature or cold water? Cold water, and I would say, you know, let them rinse it for 30 seconds to a minute. It's more for comfort than anything. It's it's going to cool the skin down as well. But, um, you know, Tom, I don't know if there's a, a skin difference there that you might know better than I. But we're taught never to put uh, topical antibiotics on the skin, at least the over-the-counter ones, and just use, uh, you know, plain petroleum jelly. Um, and, you know, if you get a blister, you can pop it, but don't take the roof off of it. Right. because it acts as a biological bandage for it. But you're right. If it's, you know, deeper than a blister or you think it might be, uh, you're right. They've got to be really careful so they maintain function of the fingers. It's interesting. Our burn clinic here used to use Silvadine. Ah, that's a different matter. <laughs> Silvadine. I use Silvadine all the time on patients for wounds that are healing on their own that aren't stitched because it stimulates the formation of healing tissue, of granulation tissue. Okay. Well, they don't, they don't use that as much here as they used to, and they do. They use a little bit more Bactroban. Well, Bactroban is a good, but see, that's not over-the-counter. Yeah. The yeah, over-the-counter ones have a lot of uh, resistance to them, yeah. whereas Bactroban, I have all my patients use Bactroban in their noses before surgery because up to half of people carry staph bacteria in their nose at any given time, and it will kill that, whereas the over-the-counter antibiotics don't kill most of the infectious antibacteria. They just kill the good, the good bacteria. There we go. But we digress. Good dermatology. <laughs> I like it. No, I, I've got another derm one for you guys, kind of pediatric related, but lacerations. Um, every kid gets scrapes, scratches, abrasions, and probably once in a while, a lot of kids will end up needing stitches. How do I know if my little kid needs stitches? Great question. That is a great one, Andrew. And I can't tell you during my office hours, how many times I say, just bring them in. I have to see it. I can't tell. <laughs> and I just, if I don't need to stitch it, I won't. Um, or occasionally I've had them send me in a picture through my the chart. Um, I'll do that after hours too. Um, I mean, we stitch for two reasons. We stitch for um, hemostasis or blood control. So if you can't stop the bleeding, um, the other is cosmetic. So if you've got one on the face, I'm more likely to stitch it. And I actually don't like Dermabond on the face, but um, uh, so I will stitch on a face just because I get better cosmetic results. So if it's in a place where you're concerned about that, um, or if it's gaping, if it's a small wound and the, there's no little to no bleeding, you certainly might get a little bit bigger scar, but it may not absolutely need stitches. What do you guys think about the at-home remedies for um, things that might need stitches? Are, are there any things that are verboten? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically uh, duct tape, super glue, lavender oil, uh, anything that you'd say, don't even try that. We just need to see it. I probably wouldn't use um, any of those things. Tom can tell me from a dermatological <laughs> standpoint. Um, the the um, yeah, this, the super glue, while some people feel like that's exactly what we use, but I don't think it's the exact same substance. But as well as I was saying, cosmetically, especially in kids, kids tend to pick at even the Derbamon that we use, they pick at it and then you get a bigger scar because they'll open up the wound again. And I think that doing that at home would probably cause more of that to happen. There's only one place where I've recommended patients to regularly use super glue, and those are patients who get really dry, cracked palms with deep fissures. 
And that can make a difference on holding it together so as the skin grows out, the fissure doesn't continue to be present. By the laceration, I've, I've never recommended it. And even in my surgical training, we experimented with a Dermabond when it came out over 20 years ago. The results are no better than stitches, and I have a lot better control of what I get as a result with stitches, as well as, like Michelle said, the, the Dermabond can't really help stop the bleeding. I feel like at the end of stitches, you know what that scar is going to look like. But you put right. Dermabond on there and you say, oh, I, I hope it works, you know. I agree. T- tell me, going along the derm lines, I know we're running out of time, so we're going to have to save a lot of this for future shows, but how about hives? What what happens when you see kids get, get a rash and especially hives that might be itchy? When do I worry, Michelle? That's a great question. Hives in kids... I don't know if I could give you a percentage, but it's more than 50% of the time. People always think it's allergic reaction, and it usually is not. It's usually a virus that causes hives. So generally, hives is not anything to be concerned about. Benadryl is going to you know, help with the itch and sometimes take away the hives, although not always. Um, you know, if they ate, they ingested something and have hives, more suggestive that there could be an allergy. But if there wasn't that association, hives are generally going to be very benign, benign meaning not something to worry about and something that you can, you know, treat just the symptoms with some Benadryl. And, and Michelle, as a final question, what do you think is a good source of information uh, besides the apps? If patients want to kind of bone up on common problems that five-year-olds and under have? So there is um, a couple of different sources. Um, One, I would say there's, I think it's what to expect for your toddler. There's those what to expect series. They Ah, have some really good um, just general medical advice for age groups in there. And then the, there's some uh, bright beginnings is uh, American Academy of Pediatrics has a website, which is similar to what I was speaking about with my um, after hours advice. They have a website that has a link to some of those same exact um, after hours questions of when to call the doctor. That's wonderful. Well, I look forward to having you back to talk about problems in kids that are over five years old. This has been a true blessing for our listeners. Michelle, thanks for coming back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, guys. You guys have a great rest of your day. And we're back with Dr. Doctor. I've been having a really good time on this show, talking about pediatric medical problems, especially for the youngest kids. And now I know everybody who's hung in there this long. We are here with the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes. So to cut to the chase, what are the, the, the second, third, and fourth most common reasons after well child visits that parents bring their children in to a pediatrician or family physician. And I gave a hint that there is a three-letter acronym used for a surgical subspecialty that'll give you the answer. That's a good hint, Tom. I think some people got that one. And and you know, I often refer some of my patients with really big holes on their noses to a doctor in an office, and these three huge letters are on top of his building. And those letters, Andrew, are? E-N-T, ears, nose, and throat. Ears, nose, and throat. So the the number two reason kids go uh, is the N reason, uh, the nose, upper respiratory infections, the stuffy nose, the... Uh, what was the old word for cold? Coryza, C-O-R-Y-Z-A. Yes. Word. Uh, the E is the number three. Those would be ears, otitis media, ear infections, uh, which can be either with pus uh, or without pus and just with fluid. And then the number th- uh, four reason is the T, throat. And that would be acute pharyngitis, which is just a fancy way to say a sore throat. So and- sore throat, ear infections, and ear pain and uh, nose stuffiness and infection. And I'm noticing a pattern with these. Not only are they all things that make you feel different and poorly, but they're also things that the average parent can't really look at and say, what the heck is going on? Yes. And I'm thinking of little med student Andrew trying to look in ears and how many ears do you have to look at before you feel confident saying that is normal, that is not normal? A lot. And so that, uh, it makes sense, but those are common, common problems. All right. Well, from the wealth of information Michelle gave us, what are your top three takeaways, Andrew? Yes, I I really enjoy that. We're going to have to have her back for sure. You know, I I think the number one thing that I got from Michelle, I was was clever to try and pin her down. (laughs) What's the highest fever and what's this and that? Because I get these questions too. And you know what? She was very wise to say, 
you really have to look at multiple data points. There isn't a number on the fever, and there isn't a length of laceration, and there isn't a, a type of fall that's more dangerous. You have to look at multiple data points. Does the kid look really sick? Do they look really lethargic? Or are they screaming because they hurt themselves? That's kind of reassuring. So I thought that was number one. Great. Number two was, uh, it struck me, but I, I wholeheartedly agree. She said that for kids who are in daycare or you know young school-age kids, she expects them to get sick about every two weeks. And That's that is amazing. normal. And I'm I, sure that average dropped during COVID. Yeah. And well, and you know, we're seeing the consequences of that now here in the summer of 2021, because last year kids did not get sick. And we're seeing a lot of sick problems that usually come in the winter. We're seeing them now because we missed last year. Ah. But if you're like the Malali kids and you're sick half the time until you're five, you are totally normal. They are not broken. And you're and not number three. <laughs> the secret weapon answer is number three was poison control. Parents don't think about it a lot. Their first thought is to call me, and and that's always okay to call your doctor. But believe it or not, I do not have all those charts in my brain. Um, poison control, when I'm working in the ER or you call the doctor or anything like that, we're going to call poison control. They're a bunch of PhDs with graphs and numbers, and they're going to tell us what to do based on the ingestion. So go ahead and call them first if you'd like to. I think that'd be just fine. 1-800-222-1222. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of this show with a friend and ask them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. You can also find all of our old episodes on drdoctor.org. Please be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.